Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Philip Lance, and I'm t- today's host. Today, I'm speaking with Jan Abram and Robert Hinchelwood about their book, published by Rutledge in 2018, The Clinical Paradigms of Melanie Klein and Donald Winnicott, Comparisons and Dialogues. And let me introduce our, our authors. Um, Jan Abram is, looking it up here, I just had it, a training and supervising analyst of the British Psychoanalytic Society and is in full-time private practice in London. Her book, The Language of Winnicott, was published in 1996 and awarded Outstanding Scholarly Book in 1997. And then Bob Hinchelwood is a fellow of the British Society. He's a professor, a prodigious writer. He's the author of a book, The Dictionary of Kleinian Thought. So we have sort of the foremost, I think, Winnicottian and Kleinian sort of expert scholars online with us today to talk about the differences between these two thinkers. So maybe before we get started, I think, Bob, can you say something more about the Dictionary of Kleinian Thought? Oh, I could say quite a lot. Um, it's published in 1989, quite a long time ago, um, when I um, had been doing quite a bit of teaching in um, a psychotherapy organization and trying to teach Klein, and I realized how much I needed to learn about Klein myself. So the dictionary was um, the product of quite a lot of uh, teaching that I did and trying to find answers to the clever questions that young students were asking me. So it, And it went down rather well. The, the, the dictionary seemed to become quite popular and is now translated into eight or nine languages around the world. Um, but that was a long time ago now. It's nearly uh, 30 years. And um, I've, uh, I passed by the opportunity of doing a new edition <laughs> just a few years ago and handed over the project to uh, an organization called the Melanie Klein Trust. And you may know that there is uh, now a new dictionary of Kleinian thought. came out, what, three years ago, Um, uh, which is a a new edition largely based on my my work. There you are. There's a quick uh, rundown of what the dictionary is. Yeah, so for years I've had two books on my shelf right next to each other. Um, Jan's book, The Language of Winnicott, has always been right next to the new dictionary of Kleinian thought. Whenever my eye fell on this new dictionary, I always thought Henschel would. And it was only just now when I had pulled it out, I thought, oh, I found out, you know, Elizabeth Spot, Bot Spilius and, and several other authors. It's This is based on your book, but... 
Well, let me um, let's start talking about this book, and maybe Jan could tell us how this book came to be. Okay, I'll I'll start off with that. Well, I, I just would like to just let you know that uh, Bob's book that he's just been describing um, actually happened to be the first psychoanalytic book launch I went to in huh. 1989. And uh, Bob uh, had actually been my teacher in the 80s. And uh, it was definitely um, an inspiration for me when I got Language of Winnicott together. And for similar reasons to Bob, you know, I wanted to write something that would be useful for me. And it was uh, I, I was delighted that it, it, it was useful for others as well. But so there has been, there's quite a continuity between Bob and I um, in terms of uh, our, um, I suppose, our interest in defining and discussing uh, uh, different models, um, different theoretical models. Um, and although language of Winnicott is is in a, it's been sort of organized in a, in a different way from Bob's book. Um, Bob's book was definitely an inspiration for me doing that book. So when I went to um, University of Essex as a visiting professor um, on behalf of, as it were, it's a post that got set up between Essex and the British Psychoanalytical Society, I was uh, I was very pleased that Bob was there, and I suggested doing a workshop on having a dialogue on uh, the, the the different paradigms, and that's really how the book started um, from a workshop. I, w- I was really pleased that Bob agreed to do the workshop. We enjoyed it, um, and it was extremely interesting, and the audience enjoyed it too. And then we uh, gave another workshop in Poland, in Warsaw, in fact, a couple of years later. And it just seemed the most natural thing in the world to try and find uh, a way of uh, making this a book. Okay. Um, And a fascinating book it is. Um, And I want to ask Bob about um, the controversial discussions, because I think that historical event sort of provides a background to this book. I I think Klein and the, I guess when people think of the controversial discussions, they think of Anna Freud versus Melanie Klein. Um, But I think, where does Winnicott fit into that? And Bob, can you give us a little background Um, there? Yes, it was very much a, a discussion of controversies between, um, Anna Freud and Melanie Klein, that had been going on since 1926. Uh, the controversial discussions were set of four um, papers produced by Kleinians and uh, torn down by <laughs> Anna Freudians over a period of 18 months in the British society. Where did Winnicott come in that? I don't think you should ask me because... I read all those um, uh, all those scientific papers and all those discussions uh, while I was writing the dictionary, um, and I don't recall very much 
of Winnicott in any of that. It was in 1943, 1944, during wartime, and I think a lot of a lot of the members of the Psychoanalytical Society were away in the military, and they were not regular attenders at the uh, at these controversial discussions. But I really don't have a recollection of Winnicott. Um, contributing very much, and I think I would because I was—I've always been interested in Winnicott. Now I think, uh, Jan, do you know what uh, Winnicott did in um, to contribute to the to the controversies during that period? Yes, he did. Um, according to Pearl King and Ricardo Steiner, in that huge, marvelous work they did on the controversial discussions. They said that he did attend every meeting except one, evidently. But later on in his later work, he says they left him cold, (laughs) those those controversies. Um, And you can see where he contributed, but in quite a sort of at that time, a minor way. Um, And of course, it wasn't until 1945, the end of the discussions, when he first presents his um, primitive emotional development paper and that's where he really says right I'm going to go for it now and I don't care whether this is the party line or not Um, I just have to um, think about what my clinical practice inspires in me and I often say and I think most people would agree that that's where he really starts his original way of leaving the debates behind and getting on with his own work and I think that's the beginning of his the development of his new well, then paradigm. Maybe I'm thinking my the, what I'm trying to get at with this question is more so did the controversial discussions kind of evolve from Klein versus Anna Freud to Klein versus Winnicott or is that where there's more tension today in today's world. My sense is that they didn't evolve anywhere uh, and the controversial discussions were, in one sense, a terrific failure because they did not bring the British society together um, at all. It, 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 the, the British society came to um, a tripartite arrangement where for decades people really hardly engaged with each other's work at all. Um, it was a very peculiar time uh, in the uh, early 1940s, during wartime, nearly all the psychoanalytical societies in Europe had disappeared and the British was the only one left apart from a small one in Sweden and a small one in Switzerland. And uh, so it was desperately important, I think, for the British society to stay together and remain a robust uh, organisation. And it did stay as a robust organisation, but not in any coherent theoretical way. So I don't think they evolved. And they certainly... As, well, I say certainly, but in my view, it was not. Um, uh, they did not represent the origins of the of the Klein and Winnicott um, partnership and um, well, whatever we call it. I hesitate to call it um, disagreement because 
in my view, uh, Klein and Winnicott were in greater agreement than in disagreement. Let's come back to that because I guess I kind of have my opinion about that. But I, I know you call them a partnership, which, um, which is great. Um, so, but let's carry on with a question for Jan about how is this book put together? Sort of, what's it structured? Okay, you don't want me to add to this um, this question about controversial discussions? Oh, sure, please do. Just, yeah, just a couple of minutes because um, really the outcome, you know, as Bob says, I think it was a, it was a crisis in the late thirties. Melanie Klein was, and I learned this from Bob, about to leave, wasn't she, Bob? Uh, no, she was about to leave. But she was about um, to leave the British she, Society. Um, yeah, she certainly leave. thought that Anna Freud should leave. And she was crossed with uh, Ernest Jones for inviting the yeah. Freud family to come to England. <laughs> it seemed a rather ungenerous sentiment. That's, that's why. Yeah, there was, there was a lot of tension. But my understanding is, you see, at that time, it was my heroine is Marjorie Brearley, who, who sent what's called the armistice letter to Melanie Klein, really begging her to, to, to talk about it without the personal assaults, because there were some really personal stuff that went on in some of those debates and scientific meetings. And I'm not sure I would see it as a failure, but it was the, the controversial discussions. I think the, the conclusion was uh, this. It, I wouldn't say it was tripartite. I would say it was, it was you know, the A and B training, uh, the Anafroidians with the B training and the Kleinians with the A training. And then there was this whole load of indigenous psychoanalysts who said we don't want to be A or B training and they became known as the middle groupers but by Edward Glover one of the Freudians um, but in fact I you know I, I think it was I, I hate this term middle groupers um, they were analysts who didn't want to split um, and wanted to remain uh, neutral as, as it were but what we did get is, I think, Bob, an evolution of Freudian theory and uh, an evolution of Kleinian theory. And the independents were somehow in between. And Winnicott certainly was one of those, but he didn't want the he didn't want that system of different trainings. I just want I just thought that was quite important to get in. Okay. Okay. Um, and the other thing, going back to your question, Philip, about how is the book put together? Um, you see, the thing is, Winnicott, it's true, was seen by a lot of Freudians and still is to some extent as a Kleinian, because Melanie Klein did name him as one of her training analysts at the beginning of um, the controversial discussions. Um, and in a way, in 1945, that's what he was saying. He was dropped by her, in fact. And that was partly because he couldn't get what she needed in terms of theories ready for the uh, discussions. But neither could John Rickman. Um, Pearl King said they were very 
independent uh, public school boys who, who couldn't be kind of controlled. Um, it, and, and of course, I can understand that Melanie Klein did need some kind of um, control over how they were going to debate these certain issues that Edward Glover and others were really criticising her for. So she was um, under a lot of pressure uh, during that time. Um, And I think it could be argued that actually the outcome has been very creative for both Kleinians Mm -hmm. and Freudians and independents. Okay, and can you say a little... A little bit about the structure of the book, just briefly, sort of how it how it's put together. Yeah, we we decide we after the workshop, we um, we really decided that we ca- we evolved certainly this structure, didn't we, Bob? Um, so it's five parts. Uh, the first part, basic principles of our respective authors. So just we we aimed to do short chapters because the dictionaries and all sorts of other literature is out there, but what we saw as the basic principles. Um, And after those first two chapters, then we have a dialogue. Um, In part two, we felt early psychic development was very important to look at and look at the differences there. Um, And after that, we have a summary and another dialogue and so forth. Um, Part three is the role of the external object. Part four, the psychoanalytic concept of psychic pain. And part five, practice and theory. We decided that we should let Melanie Klein, uh, Bob wrote the first chapter of each part because obviously uh, Winnicott was junior to her and the other thing is he was really in dialogue with her. I have said in several writings that I think without Freud and Klein, we wouldn't have a Winnicott. Um, even though his paradigm is different and distinct, it was because he was in discourse with those two different paradigms, in my view, the Kleinian and the Freudian. Okay. And what you mentioned this, um, I think, that you actually emailed each other back and forth at times to create this dialogue aspect of the book, which I found really useful and entertaining even. Sometimes it even seemed like you were getting a little testy with each other. And I'm I'm wondering, Bob, um, <laughs> that worked to create a um, an engaging sort of read. Uh, am I perceiving... I what, good you know, are you yes. guys still friends? I think we couldn't have written the book <laughs> if we hadn't been good friends and if there hadn't been a respect for each other. And indeed, if we, if, uh, we hadn't respected each other's particular uh, person. I mean, I did respect Winnicott's work and... I think Jan respected Klein's. So, and I think we were uh, very um, careful to try to sustain a respectful uh, quality to the dialogue. It's true. You're absolutely right, Philip, that you can't have um, extended discussions. Yes, they were all discussions by email. You can't have extended discussions without uh, feeling provoked sometimes or feeling irritated that your point hasn't got across or uh-huh. something like that. That's that's inevitable. 
I think, I don't know if um, uh, your comment, a little mad with each other, I don't know if that's um, an exaggeration, but, you know, um, uh, any, uh-huh. uh, any communication between two people has its ups and downs. I think we did rather well to sustain a friendship through, through all these uh, dialogues. How long did it take us, Jan? It must have been a year plus that we were working on these dialogues. I don't remember exactly how long. Yeah, it was, yes, I, I think... A good um, six months. It was a, it a was good six months, well wasn't it? Fellow periods. Um, yes, uh, but yes, yeah. you're you're interested yeah. in how we did it, and I think that's um, I, I think we ha- I think it's a remarkable achievement that we made, Philip, that we were able to manage this dialogue together without falling out uh, in yeah. a way that um, you know our predecessors and ancestors did. We were doing this on the basis of um, decades, what, 60, 70 years of um, disharmony between Klein and Winnicott. And uh, I can't say we put that to rest, but um, we had it very much in mind, I think, and did uh, try to be careful with that. Yeah, I'm I'm having a a little fun with you, partly because I recognize um, that... In some ways, it really is a model of, I think the British aren't you guys famous for your sort of cordiality and courtesy. Um, and and it's it's actually beautifully done. So I want to, I want to, um, for our listeners, help them understand, begin the, some of the basic differences between the paradigms, maybe by using the idea of the the infant, the the Winnicottian infant, and the Kleinian infant, they're they're two different infants. And to kind of mix this up a little bit, instead of having Jan do the Winnicottian infant, why don't why don't you each describe the others? Um, so so like Bob, can you talk about what is the uh, foremost about the Winnicottian? Infant. I think this is a really cruel way of going about <laughs> But perhaps, uh, perhaps it's an interesting I, it's an interesting idea. I want to say first of all that um, uh, Winnicott and Klein were on the same lines really. They were both absolutely clear that there's something going on in the mind that's at a deeper level than the unconscious, neurotic, the level of repression. They were both clear about that, that there were experiences which perhaps resurface in some adults as psychotic experiences. And I think both were clear that this was something to do with the formation of the ego, the development of the ego itself, uh, as opposed to working out the conflicts that get into an already functioning ego, the Oedipal uh, conflicts in particular. And I think this is where they were very much along the same lines. I think this must have been what attracted um, Winnicott in the 1920s to Klein. Uh, I think this was their common... Uh, the common factor, the common denominator between them. What they thought was going on at that deeper level 
you know, Melanie Klein is always talking about the deeper levels because she came to emphasize this uh, deeper level. Um, what was Winnicott? What did Winnicott think was going on? As I understand it, <laughs> and, uh, uh, from uh, and I have to say, I learned a great deal from the dialoguing with Jan about this. But as I understand it, Winnicott thought that the infant uh, does not have a properly functioning ego, and that it recognizes itself as having a self, having an experience of itself as separate from the rest of the world and other uh, people in the world. And in particular, it the infant does not recognize the separateness of the caregiver upon whom in an objective way the infant is completely de- dependent. The infant is at birth in a state of, well, um, maybe one would call it a delusion, but I think Winnicottians call it an illusion, that the infant is almighty and is providing entirely for itself. Um, I think that's uh, the the really important uh, difference that... Um, comes out, and I, I, I really stress that from the understanding that I've got from Jan. There you are, Jan. What about okay, the client infant? The, uh, Jan, are you there? Can Can you tell us about the yes, I'm how you here. see the Kleinian infant? Well, um, in fact, in our first workshop, this is really where we were um, recognizing how different the two infants are. Um, and uh, do you remember, Bob, you saying that the Kleinian infant was was screaming blue murder? I think that was your, your expression. Um, and as I understand it, you see the paranoid schizoid position that, that Klein developed after she had developed the, the notion of the depressive position. I think I'm, I'm right in, in thinking, in, in, in getting that. Um, it, it's it's really the early primitive um, psychic moment of the infant, which is terrifying and murderous, and so and the infant has to go through a huge amount of angst, one could say, um, which um, I think that Melanie Klein did recognise the role of the environment. But the role of the environment rather mitigated what the uh, baby had to go through rather than in Winnicott's frame, if the mother was good enough, they didn't have to go through this murderous rage. Uh, That came later, but they didn't have to go through it right at the very beginning. Well, then let's let's pick up from that that blue murderous murderous blue rage. I, I had another question about how each one of these theorists handle instinct, and it's. But I think maybe we can keep that in mind and come back to it if necessary. But let's let's take off from this idea of a baby, who's in that moment of screaming, murderous rage, because it gets to a difference between Klein and Winnicott on what hate and aggression is all about, and um, 
I don't know, maybe maybe Jan, you could say a little bit about as a Winnicottian, what are you seeing in the infant who's screaming um, uh, in rage? What's going on there? Um, well, quoting Winnicott, it would be the edge of unthinkable anxiety. But the edge means that if there is a mother who is identified at a very profound level with the infant, the infant never actually has to fall forever, never has to actually experience primitive agony, as he puts it. She is the holding environment that means he never has to go through that. Um, And she, in that sense, is his ego, if we call the baby he, for the differentiation between the mother and the baby. Um, And so it would depend on how the environment mother is coping with her feelings um, with this newborn infant and how she's handling and holding and managing the infant's anxiety, because it's not as if there are no anxieties at that time, but there's no intentional murder. There's no, you know, for Winnicott, there's no death instinct. There's life instinct and there's communication at a very um, primitive um, uh, primitive level. So if the baby could speak, the baby would be saying, help me, I'm, I need some help here to organize what's happening to my body out in the world. Now I'm outside of the womb. Something along those lines. Does that make sense? Yeah, so the baby's screaming maybe because it, it hasn't been held well enough and, um, and that's the, the origins of this uh, experience, horrific experience the baby feels like it's going through. So... I may be putting words in your mouth, but let's move to Bob. And then, Bob, what do you see as from a Kleinian perspective in the screaming baby? Well, very much the same as uh, what Jan has been saying, um, that the baby inevitably meets frustrations and a, a reality that doesn't provide something or other that makes it feel insecure, Um the baby has needs, and mother does her best to uh, work out what they are and to uh, care for the baby. Um, and mother doesn't always get it right. <laughs> uh, that's the reality, and the baby has to accommodate both um, a mother who's holding very well, or looking after, giving satisfaction, uh, the baby then feels satisfaction and feels more than just satisfaction, but feels there is a, a somebody who is benevolent. Um, so it is more than just a, a, uh, a, a feeling of satisfaction. But the other side of it holds as well, that things don't always go right and the baby feels not satisfied and something comes from the baby which says it's not just I'm not satisfied, it's somebody who actively wants me to be dissatisfied, at least at the very early stages in the first few weeks or months. These are symmetrically opposite kinds of reactions. That would be something of the um, 
a Kleinian view. There is, as Susan Isaacs put it, a fantasy about the object and the ob- what the object is like, whether the object is good or and benevolent, whether the object it has malevolent intentions. There's a polarity there. You you quickly you you quickly slid over the, what a, a, a thing about instincts, and <laughs> I I would make um, I would make a, a, try and make it quick, uh, but Klein didn't know anything about instincts. She was not a biologist. She was not a doctor. She was not educated in a scientific way. And I don't think she really understood um, the way that the term instinct was used. I'm sure she never read Fechner and his uh, idea of psychophysics and so on that was so influential for Freud. So what Klein was talking about were these experiences of the baby um, that seemed to come from some sort of innate predisposition. And I don't think one can talk about them as instincts in the sense that classical psychoanalysis does, that they are a source of energy that uh, drives um, uh, uh, various wishes and satisfactions. She did not have a theory of energy. She never, in any of her writings, talks about psychic energy or about the economic model. It just wasn't part of her conceptual thinking. What she did, uh, what she was interested in, was the kind of narratives that the baby seems to inherently bring out when it has its various experiences uh, at the hands of its caregiver. And as you will probably know, um, Susan uh, Susan Isaacs uh, converted this from instinct theory into an object relations theory by saying instincts are mentally represented as unconscious fantasies. Okay, so let me see if I if if I can kind of hear what I hear from this is so in Melanie Klein's paradigm, the infants having experience felt bodily experiences and it always has there's a concurrent fantasy going on about to you, an object and a subject, or a, a, a you and a me doing something to each other. And that that's an innate th- way of experiencing the world through this fantasy of two objects <clears throat> relating to each other. And that's what she, so that's innate, but that's not what we think of it as an instinct in the way Freud and biologists think of instincts. Quite different, yes. I would say it's quite different from a, from Freud's um, view of uh, based on nineteenth-century physiology. Fechner, as I mentioned. Yeah. Okay, and so then let's and uh, let's then ask Jan. Did did Winnicott rely much on on instinct theory? Well, you see, I think that Winnicott certainly was. Uh, really, he had a classical Freudian analysis with James Strachey, and he did follow Klein, uh, Klein's work. But 
In terms of the infant and what Bob has just said about the splitting that the infant does at the very beginning in Kleinian theory, that's not happening in the Winnicottian baby. And actually, there's no such thing as frustration for the Winnicottian baby in the good enough environment, because according to Winnicott, there's no ego. You have to have an ego functioning in order to be frustrated. And the ego is enlisted. It's the mother's ego that is enlisted by the infant. Um, whereas in Klein, as I've understood it from, from Bob and others, that, you know, the, 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 the baby is object relating from the beginning. Um, and there does seem to be a suggestion of the separation between object and subject. Whereas for Winnicott, there's a merger. And there's an environment mother and an object mother that gradually through the course of time and the way in which the baby has been held or not will evolve into the capacity to perceive me as distinct from the not me. And that's when the baby starts to reach the development of the capacity for concern. So it is a, it's quite a different language and a different way of thinking about the very, very early stages. There isn't a persecutory object in the baby that has been well enough held. All right. Well, let's, um, let's move on to this topic that's come up a little earlier about can these paradigms be integrated? Can a clinician um, work with both of them or do you have to pick kind of one or the other? And I'll, I'll say that sort of my humble opinion, uh, talking to experts and I'm sort of at the beginning of all this, but I, in my, sometimes when I'm in a consulting room, I, I don't think they c- can be. It seems like you have to go with one direction or the other or things get confused. But what, how do we, each of you think about this question? Um, and let's see, maybe start with Bob. Yes, okay. Um, yes, I think we, it, it, there's a risk in these sorts of discussions of uh, polarizing and that uh, emphasizing what the differences are. And I, first of all, want to say that um, I think the biggest thing is the similarities that uh, Klein and Winnicott were both interested in these very early moments of, of the fragility of the of the ego, um, and uh, but then I wouldn't want to dismiss the the differences. So I think that that. Um, Kleinians and Winnicottians are looking in the same sort of area for what sort of experiences they are left over from this very early or the deeper layer, as uh, Klein called it. I think there are significant differences, um, whether um, it's different that Klein use the idea of a death instinct and Winnicott didn't, I'm not sure, because I, I think the idea of an instinct gets um, very confused when we think about uh, Klein's unconscious fantasies and it was 
really established by Susan Isaacs in the controversial discussions that we should think about the unconscious fantasies and what sort of experiences they produce. Um, what does seem to me as an important difference and that one probably has to take um, a decision on whether, uh, on what, what one, uh, which point of view one agrees with. But, and that is, as Jan was saying, Klein uh, was of the view that the infant from the beginning was aware of some separation, some quality of separation from an object other than itself which then may get seen in terms of uh, the narratives of these unconscious fantasies, whereas Winnicott uh, saw things in terms of a, a merger, or he thought the infant saw things in terms of a merger and that there is not really a, a capacity to distinguish a self from other. Um, those are two incompatible points of view and one has to probably decide which one accepts uh, <clears throat> maybe on good grounds, maybe just on grounds that um, one belongs to a group a particular group or not but they uh, one can't believe both of those things <laughs> that the infant is born with an ego and an ego boundary and the infant is also born in the state of merger with its uh, surrounding world. So, yes, that's my thought about uh, how we use these things. Yeah, and maybe you pick one or the other, but maybe both of them can work and good clinicians make both of the paradigms work quite well, um, even though they're based on some different theoretical ideas. But Jan, what are your thoughts about this question of the compatibility of the paradigm? Yeah, I, I think it's very, very interesting because it is so much for me about the use of an object, really, the use of a theory. Um, and I think, you see, if I think about Klein's work on the paranoid schizoid position, it's absolutely brilliant. And I can feel it from time to time with certain patients on the couch going through a particular phase. And it's, it's, uh, it's almost theory in vivo, you know, with, with certain patients. And where I completely disagree with her is um, that, that she saw that as being, as being evidence that this was early psychic development. But for me, and this obviously is me following Winnicott, it's evidence of the failure of the early psychic environment that causes that paranoid schizoid um, moment. It's not uh, a universal stage of development. And I think that's where Bob and I would disagree, which is fine. I mean, that, we, we, we don't claim to um, to, to, to be um, the same. Uh, uh, and we, we're not necessarily um, uh, arguing forcefully for one model or the other. It's just that we disagree about that. Now, the question, the very interesting question then is, uh, as you're indicating, is what difference does that make in the consulting room? And that's where we come to technique. And I think you can make use of different theories but how do you manage these 
in when you talk to your patients and what do you do with interpretations and what do you do with listening and you know it's it, again it's it's listening to one's own Countertransference, uh, a concept that uh, Klein was uh, quite skeptical of. Um, but for me, it's in the consulting room, it's listening to how I'm feeling as that patient is going through a very particular phase and what is going to be the most helpful thing for that patient at any given moment. And of course, there are lots of clinical examples. We'd need to go to clinical examples really to start really unpicking the differences. And as Bob says, we might end up seeing that we have different approaches, but actually in the consulting room, we might be working in, in a very similar way. I'm, I'm going to start winding us down because I know Bob has to get off to a theater a date there in, um, in England. But uh, I, I was going to ask a question about the myths, I think, that each – there's there's myths about Kleinian the Kleinian paradigm paradigm and there's myths about the Winnicottian one and you <clears throat> help through this book to um, expose those myths. Um, but maybe I'll finish by asking uh, since you've done workshops on this and it seems like such a relevant and practical um, field for clinicians. Are are you planning on doing? more workshops in other parts of the world or how are you planning to continue to work together to develop um, the work of this book? Yes, we are. I think Jan can tell you about some of the discussions we've been having just today. Yes, go ahead, Bob. Oh, I say, I, th- I, I was thinking you could um, uh, say something about the discussions we have been turning over in our minds today. I mean, before uh, podcast. Yes, uh, well, we, we've already done two workshops on Beyond and Winnicott, um, one uh, in, um, in Poland again, and uh, we do feel that there's a lot of interest in this kind of book, um, especially, as you've pointed out, Philip, the, the comparisons and the dialogues. And we feel that this is um, uh, th- th- this is a good paradigm for future books of dialogues um, and a good template. And so um, we are uh, in the process of now getting a synopsis ready on Beyond and Winnicott. And um, we're hoping to be talking to Routledge about a series um, of uh, clinical paradigms of different authors with um, different um, different clinicians, different well-known clinicians um, that uh, different contemporary authors would be interested in um, uh, dialoguing on. So th- these, these, this is our uh, preliminary plan at the moment. Yes, we're, we're trying to develop a different kind of controversial discussion from what happened in the <laughs> A more successful one. Yeah. Well, I, I understood Bob was sort of semi-retired, but um, based on this ambitious sort of, it doesn't sound like it's going to last long. Um, oh, you've got to do something in your retirement. This is... 
Okay. Well, I so enjoyed this book. Um, I think a lot of our listeners will too. And um, I'm glad we got through this podcast because when the first time we started it, suddenly it dropped off. And I think it's because it was at the moment that England beat, who was it in the World Cup? The- Sweden. Sweden. <laughs> England. Yeah. Something happened to the internet and it all went haywire. So we had to start over. So, but now we're, we've concluded it seems seemingly successfully. So thank you so much, Bob and Jan, Bob Henshelwood and Jan Abram um, for talking to me today about your book. Let me read the title, um, The Clinical Paradigms of Melanie Klein and Donald Winnicott, Comparisons and Dialogues. Um, so you've been listening to me, Philip Lance, here at the New Books in Psychoanalysis. And uh, check out our website and feel free to email me with your comments and questions. Thanks for listening. Thank you.